Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm reading from Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 19 rather than 20, as the bullet indicates. Here we find a piece of the history of things that happened the last week that Jesus lived among us, a time when the confrontation between him and his enemies was becoming increasingly public and increasingly heated. And in Luke 20, beginning at verse 19, we read, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but treats the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept their silence. I may not be alone in this room, I'm not sure, but I find that this last week, strangely, government has been on my mind. I've been preoccupied with thoughts about all of those forms and all of those schedules that are so familiar to us this time of year. I've had a bad nightmare about a man with thick glasses and an unfeeling face who demands that I multiply the line, number on line 30 by .0435, add that figure to the year of my birth, divide the whole thing by my mother-in-law's weight, and then makes me place one hand on the Bible and the other on the IRS code and swear that my return is accurate to the nearest penny and threatens me with waterboarding if it isn't. I once saw a purported simplified tax form. It had two lines. The first line said, how much did you make last year? The second line said, send it in. <laughs> I do our taxes every year. And every time I drop the completed forms in the mailbox, I expect a SWAT team to leap out of the bushes and holler, freeze. But so far, so good. No one likes to pay taxes. At the time of the American Revolution, our forefathers complained about taxation without representation. Now we have taxation with representation, and we don't like it a whole lot better. Samuel warned the Hebrews that if they got the king that they were demanding, he was going to tax them heavily. And in Jesus' day, the Jews were complaining about having to pay taxes to support the despised Roman government. It is this tension, of course, that stands behind the question that was asked of Jesus in that last week, is it lawful or is it not for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And I trust that you know that the law to which they referred was not, first of all, that written by a man enthroned in Rome, but by the God who is enthroned in the heavens. Now, we understand that they were not sincere in asking this question about divine truth. 
Their motive was not to be better informed, it was rather to trap Jesus in his words. This plot was based on the fact that the people resented paying those taxes, but the people lived under the thumb of Roman authority, which meant that no matter how Jesus answered the question, yes, you must pay your taxes, no, you should not pay your taxes, it was a lose-lose situation for him and a win-win situation for his enemies because no matter what he said, they could bring charges against him to the authorities. These men were clever devils. Luke indicates that they spent hours in heated discussions devising a strategy to trap Jesus. They considered one ploy and then another, and then finally someone suggested this brilliant question about taxes, and they left their darkened chambers chortling among themselves at their collective cleverness and the great victory that was about to be theirs in public. A person who is reading the Bible for the first time and comes upon this story senses the dilemma in which this question placed Jesus and may stop reading for just a moment and look off into the distance and wonder, how could any man answer this question and avoid the trap that had been so cunningly set for him? He can't imagine a way, as the enemies of Jesus could not imagine a way that the question could be answered. But then he opens his Bible and he continues to read. And he hears Jesus say in response to this question, you should render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. And that first time reader is amazed as men in the first century seem to have been amazed at the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We consider his answer carefully and we realize, of course, it has to be this way. The most righteous of men living under the worst of governments still owe something to those governments. The only choice to this is found in the moral and civic chaos of anarchy, which no one in his right mind would support or advocate. This question, so cleverly invented by the chief priests and scribes, was, in spite of its corrupt motivation, a good question. On the surface, their question was, what is the extent of the obligations of those who, by faith, are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven to those earthly kingdoms in which they live? Do we have to pay the taxes that they levy? Do we have to obey the laws that they enact? Do we have to pay homage to their leaders? Jesus' answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, is so profound, so impressive, so obviously wise as to leave us shaking our heads in wonder and assuming that the question has been asked, the question has been answered, and that settles the issue. But it's later, perhaps hours later, when we're rehearsing this in our minds that the question comes up again and we find ourselves asking, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do I, as a Christian, determine what legitimately belongs to Caesar and what legitimately belongs to God? And the question that seems so easily dealt with proves to be difficult and complex beyond imagination. 
The question is, what is the civic duty? What are the civil duties of Christian citizens? I'd like to consider that question with you this morning. When I began working on the sermon, I thought that in one week we could easily cover the list of things we are obligated to do for Caesar and the list of things we are obligated to do for God. And the more I thought, the more I worked, the longer my outline became. And it's very obvious that not all of that can be covered in a single setting unless you want to be here until 2 o'clock. Could I see hands? Uh, there's <laughs> we lose, Joanne, but thank you for your support. And so what I'd like to look at today is the first part of this and, and answer at least a little bit of the question, what are those things that belong to Caesar? What are our civic responsibilities as Christians? The text relates, first of all, and most obviously, to the paying of taxes. And I think it's fair to interpret the question that these men ask is, do we have to pay taxes to a government we don't approve of? In other words, are we entitled or are we required by God to withhold a part or all of the taxes levied by a government that we don't like? Many of us in this room remember a time when it was fashionable for those at the left end of the political spectrum to withhold their taxes from the government to protest a war that they didn't like. Many of you remember that time very well. We also remember many of those advocating this kind of civil disobedience wore the collar or bore the titles of the Christian clergy, which meant that they were urging their congregations and their followers to disobey the government, to not pay at least a part of their taxes, and this in the name of Jesus Christ. More recently, we've seen something very similar at the other end of the political spectrum. We have learned of people who call themselves Hitari, which they tell us means Christian warriors. According to the indictment that resulted in their arrest, they were planning to kill a policeman and then ambush the procession of other policemen attending the funeral of their victim. And this they said in the name of Jesus Christ. And somewhere in the state of Kansas is a church that believes it has a cultural mandate it sends its members to protest loudly at funerals being held for fallen American servicemen, literally rejoicing in the death of these men and women in uniform, for they say this is the judgment of God upon our nation because of our increasing openness to the gay and lesbian lifestyle. And this in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, as an aside, please make no mistake about this. God condemns homosexual behavior. This judgment is announced in the Old Testament. It is repeated in the New. No conscientious Bible believer can free himself from it. But the issue here is not the rightness of a lifestyle, but in part, the irrational assumption that the deaths of American servicemen are an expression of God's displeasure with America, and secondly, in the amazingly heartless behavior of the members of this Kansas church who seem to enjoy adding grief to already mourning families and claiming this as service to Jesus Christ. The Lord spoke of a day when the nations would be gathered before him in judgment. 
And he said that on that day, there would be many who would come to him and say, Lord, look at all we have done in your name. And his response to them is, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I have never known you. In that number, we might fairly expect to see some of the advocates of civil disobedience of another time, and at least some of the Hatari, and at least some of the members of that church in Kansas. But the point is this, that just because a man wears the collar or bears the title of Christian clergy, whether in this church or any other, and just because a person claims to be acting in the name or to be led by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this does not alone entitle that person to the respect and to the obedience of believing people. The Bible requires us to test the spirits. Paul said to believers, insofar as you see me follow Jesus Christ, you follow me. Whether the subject is theology or morality or social action, the final test of a position must be nothing other than our understanding of the word of God. And in this, the chief priests and the scribes were well advised. The word of God says that one of the duties of a Christian citizen is to pay his taxes. Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And in reaction to a question about taxing, Paul said, render to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due. The Bible does not require us to like paying our taxes, but it requires us to pay our taxes. The same Bible also obligates us to obey the laws of the government under which we live. In 1 Peter, this apostle said, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, for this is the will of God. Federal laws, state laws, county statutes, city and township regulations, criminal laws, civil laws, traffic laws, zoning ordinances, rules of the workplace, rules of the condo association, rules of the golf club. As I understand the Bible, you and I as Christians are not allowed the privilege of setting ourselves above the law and deciding for ourselves which parts of the law to honor and to obey and which parts to disregard or disobey. The only exceptions to this principle are found in those circumstances in which our obedience to a law of man would require us, would force us to violate some clear expression of the will of our God. Examples of this in the Bible are very rare. I'm aware of only two in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. The two in the Old Testament both come from the book of Daniel. The first of these involve those familiar Sunday school names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow before a golden idol erected by the king of Babylon, and as a result were thrown into the fiery furnace where God met them and from which God delivered them. And the second Old Testament example comes from that time in which Darius was persuaded to issue an edict for that for a period of 30 days, prayers were to be offered by none, to none other than himself. And during that 30 days, Daniel was seen or heard in prayer, not in a public place as a protest, but in the privacy of his own chambers. And as a result, was thrown into the lion's den where God met him 
and from which God delivered him. Every Sunday school student knows of these great victories given to the faithful by our God. Every Christian adult should understand that this is civil disobedience at its most necessary. And the only New Testament example I'm aware of of this kind of disobedience is recorded in the fourth chapter of Acts, where we find Peter and Paul standing before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, that instructs them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. But they disobeyed the council. They told the council that they had no choice. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you must judge, but we cannot but speak of the things which we had seen and heard. In 4,000 years of inspired history, we find only these examples of civil disobedience. And these few, combined with the plain instruction to us to submit to the ordinance of men, speak pretty clearly to our obligations to secular authority. Had Peter written these words in another time, perhaps in Northern Europe after the Reformation or in colonial America, it would be one thing because those in government at that time at least pretended to be Christians. But they were written in a time in which the reins of secular power were held in the hands of a pagan, a polytheist, a man unrelated to the covenant people of God. And yet a ruler God tells his people to respect and to obey. The same Bible that enjoins us to pay our taxes and to obey the laws of the land also encourage us to pray for those in positions of authority in our lives. The second chapter, 1 Timothy, begins with these words. I exhort, therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. And I remind you that Paul was writing not in an age in which People in authority read their Bibles every day and went to church every Sunday. But rather, he had in his imagination, as he's instructing Christians to pray for those in authority, an idolater, a heathen, a man who one day would be cast into that outer darkness of which Jesus so often spoke. And still he instructed Christian believers to offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks for that pagan dictator. I would imagine there's a division in our church. I would imagine that when we have an opportunity to step into a polling place and pull the curtain that we don't all place X's in the same boxes. Those of us who found it natural to pray with thanksgiving for our last president find ourselves choking on the words when the name of the first present president is mentioned in our prayers and vice versa. But this is our duty. The mandate of Scripture makes no reference to the personal attraction of a man, to our agreement with his political philosophy, or to the benefits that we might imagine that accrue to us because he is in office. The call that we have from the Lord is to pray for all in positions of authority in our lives, certainly at the national level, certainly at the local level. We are to express concern for their well-being, 
We are to seek wisdom and direction for them. We are to be thankful for them, recognizing that they occupy their places only because that is the will of our God. And the result or the intention of these prayers is that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives. There was a time in my life as a Christian and as a pastor when my assumption would have been that we are to pray for our leaders in the hope, and perhaps even with the expectations, that our prayers would change a man and alter the course of history. And it would have been my opinion that the more people that we can get to pray in a particular way, the more likely it is that God is going to do what we ask of him. But now I understand the biblical doctrine of predestination. Now I know that all of history is like a symphony being played by an orchestra, each player perfectly following the score written by God and set before him. My prayers don't change events. My prayers don't change people. But my prayers can change me. Let's go back to Paul's instruction to pray for those in positions of divinely ordered authority in our lives. This obviously includes government figures, but it probably includes others as well. In schools, this would require students to pray for their teachers, teachers to pray for their principals, principals to pray for superintendents, superintendents to pray for boards of education. In shops, this means that laborers should pray for their foremen. In stores, the clerks should pray for their managers. In the military and in chief, in, in uh, fire and police departments, there are chains of command. And here the scriptures require Christians in lower positions to look up that chain in their prayers. In the church, by the Bible, members are instructed to submit to their elders. In the home, children are to respect their parents, wives, their husbands. On every hand, in almost every relationship, there are people in life who outrank us, who have and exercise authority over us. And it's natural, it's not good, it's not righteous, but it's natural for us to resent at least some of those people and to chafe under at least some of that authority. But it's easy for us to imagine the peace that would come to us and the order that would come to those relationships if we were to pray for those people as the Bible instructs us to pray. If we were to pray for their well-being and their protection. If we were to pray that God would guide them and give them wisdom. If we were to be thankful for them, recognizing that they are where they are only because God intends them to be. Would it not be true that we would be enabled by our own prayers on their behalf then to lead quiet and peaceable lives, just as the scriptures promise us? We're called by scriptures to pay our taxes. We're summoned by the Bible to obey the laws of the land. And we're told that we should pray for those in authority over us. These are God's expectations for his people living in any place, in any time, and under any circumstances. These are the duties of Christian citizens wherever they might find themselves. But as we think about rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, there's a duty incumbent upon us as American Christians that God would not require of those living under the Caesar's. Most Christians living through most of history 
have lived under government that have no necessary interest in the opinions of those they govern. Most Christians have been citizens of nations ruled by royalty, by an aristocracy, or by a dictator. In such circumstances, the opinions of ordinary people have no official status. And such words as election and voting do not appear in their national lexicons. But for us, and for other Christians living in the democracies of the world, things are different. Our opinions do matter to those who are in power. Words like election and voting, so foreign to others, are familiar to us. President Lincoln spoke of this fragile experiment in history called democracy and described it as being that government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Whether or not democracy is the best form of government, and whether or not democracy can possibly survive in a world of fallen people are important and intriguing questions that go beyond the scope of our discussion. But for us, the point is that we do live under a political system in which our opinions do matter and in which our support is sought. Because our national constitution begins with the words, we the people, we the people must have a well-reasoned philosophy of government, a philosophy that shapes our private thoughts, expresses itself in our conversations with one another, and informs the votes that we cast. We're privileged to live in a nation whose leaders are required to consult with us from time to time regarding our satisfaction with their leadership. At least once every two years, we have the right to express our thoughts in the polling places. It wasn't necessary for Paul to have a political philosophy, for his opinions had no value to Caesar and his appointees. But it is important for us because our opinions do matter. And that philosophy must have as its foundation and constitution nothing other than the Bible, which we believe and accept to be the word of God. I have a challenge for you I'd like to ask and present in the form of a question. And it's a question I direct to myself as much as to you. But the question is this, do you have a political philosophy, a view of the scope and the limits of government power, an understanding of the balance between the rights and duties of people on the one hand and the rights and duties of governments on the other that shapes your perceptions of what is good and bad about American government today and determines how you vote? If your answer to that question is yes, then I congratulate you for the way that you're bearing your responsibilities as a Christian citizen. And I'd love to have a chance to talk with you about that philosophy and its scriptural grounds. If your answer is no, then I assume that you know that you have homework to do before your next political discussion, and certainly before the next election. The Bible tells us that a good Christian citizen will pay his taxes. He will respect and obey the laws of the land. He will pray for those in positions of authority over him. And he will have a biblically informed view of the role of government in the lives of its people. But there's one more duty for the Christian citizen I'd like to bring to your attention. We live as Christians in the midst of a people who, for the most part, do not share our faith are not acquainted with our Savior, 
do not know the truth and the joy and the peace of the gospel. Living among the sons of men as the children of God requires us from time to time to set aside our own interests and desires for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It means living by a higher standard, singing a sweeter song, rising above the ordinary and the common, and conducting ourselves in such a way that the love and the mercy of God gleam from our lives like a bright light in the gathering darkness of the time in which we live. It means being always respectful and honest. It means going out of our way to be kind and helpful. It means turning the other cheek and going the second mile. It means living lives of such conspicuous righteousness that others, perhaps without ever hearing a religious word from our lips, are compelled to inquire as to the great hope that was within us. James said that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says, show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. We are Christians who happen to be Americans. We live among other Americans, many of whom don't know the Lord or his grace. Let's show them our faith by acts of kindness and denial in the hope that they with us might come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and with us become citizens of that kingdom that is everlasting. Let us pray. Our Father, we tend to compartmentalize the parts of life. We tend, for example, to regard this hour as belonging to you and the rest of the day and much of the week as being ours. The money we placed in the offering recently we acknowledge is yours, but the rest of our wealth is ours to do with as we please. And we see ourselves, our God, as being Christians, living in an alien culture without a great a lot of responsibility to that culture. But here on the pages of your word, you have reminded us that this is not so. We pray that we might leave this place this morning determined to live lives among the sons of men that call attention to the grace and the mercy of your son, Jesus Christ, and the glory and the truth that are found in you. May we be the light of the world, we pray in Jesus' name.